0: Uh, before I start, I want to make a correction in our bulletin. Actually, there are two mistakes. And uh, so if you have your bulletin, open it up and go to the order of worship. Uh, they're partly my fault when I conveyed information to our communication department. Uh, I, I didn't do it exactly right. I caught the mistake an hour after the uh, bulletins were printed, but if you just take a pencil that's in front of you, find the my sermon title, it says, the Lord is my shepherd. Cross out the word Lord. Uh, and above it, write capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Lord. And then if you go to the King James version, you'll also notice that that is spelled uh, spelled correctly, but in the wrong case. Uh, cross that out and write capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D as well. Thanks. Let's uh, take a minute and turn our hearts to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we, uh, we are thankful for this imagery as well as the truth behind it, that you are our shepherd. We pray that as we consider This truth, it might sink deep, deeply into our hearts and into our lives. That you'd extend to us assurance that you are protecting and providing for us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Last spring, I was taking my uh, six year old daughter, Tabitha, to school. Uh, She was riding her scooter and we were actually riding across the Boston Common. Uh, I don't know if you noticed, but there actually are some hills on the Boston Common and she wanted to go down one. And she just started to go so fast that she actually scared herself and uh, twisted just a little bit, which threw her over her scooter, scooter handlebars, and she skidded across the ground uh, on her hands and her knees, on the blacktop. And when she came to a stop, she just, she wasn't sure what to do. Uh, she wanted to cry, but she couldn't because she was just so shocked about what just happened to her. She was staring at me with these sad, helpless eyes. Uh, not quite sure what to do. She she knew it was bad, but she didn't know how bad it was and and didn't know, again, what quite to do. But in her look, she was just saying, I need you, Dad. I need you. And she did. She needed me to pick her up. She needed me to clean off her bloody knees. She needed me to hold her And most of all, she needed me to tell her that everything was going to be okay. It was going to get better. She needed assurance. So I hugged her and I told her, you're going to be okay, honey. You're going to be okay. Who here doesn't need Assurance. I'm just looking around when we're singing. Uh, you know, He, He, you lead me, Lord. Uh, you know, He leadeth me. I'm just looking around, and I know some of your stories. Uh, and for some of you, it, it's not an easy point in your life, uh, or uh, you've been alone. Your dad died, or husband or wife has passed on. And, and who, who among us, so few of us made, us made it just through this week, you know, this week we walked through, unbloodied. You need assurance. You need assurance that God, he hasn't forgotten you. You need assurance that He intends good for you. Assurance that the dark valleys and evil and the enemies that face you day in and day out, they don't win in the end. God does. You need assurance that God cares for you, that he's guiding you, that he'll provide for you, that he'll protect you. Assurance that he's with you. Assurance that you really will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Psalm 23 is spoken to you as a word of assurance. It, it truly is a word of an assurance. It's served as that role for people who've placed their trust in our good God, Lord God, ancient of days, almighty centuries. It's why we teach Psalm 23 to our children as soon as they can memorize something. It's Psalm 23. It's why at almost every single funeral in unison, we speak aloud Psalm 23. It's a gentle whisper of a good father into your ear that everything, everything's going to be okay. This is the psalmiest of psalms. It's a psalm of a thousand sermons. And I wish I had a couple more weeks to offer a few more messages around the poetic structure of this psalm. Or going through each of the lines of the psalm and apply it specifically to our lives. But what I thought I'd do today uh, is is consider some of the background of the psalm and with a particular eye on why is this psalm so assuring to us? What is the assurance in it? Why why is it so dear to our hearts? And, you know, as, as you listen to the psalm, you know that it, it's not a psalm about uh, a good father caring for his child, but it's it starts off with the image of a shepherd tending his sheep with great care. And I think the first question we should ask about uh, this psalm is why, why a good shepherd? Why, why a shepherd? Where does that imagery come from? What's the background behind that? And, it, you know, in the days when this psalm was written, Sheep and shepherds were as common as iPhones and Ubers are today. We, we just open up the scriptures. Everywhere you look, you find something about sheep or shepherds. Uh, the scriptures tell us that a number of the characters or the, the individuals, biblical uh, figures, uh, were shepherds. Adam's son, Abel, was a shepherd. Rachel, the wife of Jacob, she was a shepherdess. Joseph describes his entire family to Pharaoh as that they're all shepherds. Uh, uh, Moses and David, they were at times in, in their, their, their lives, they were shepherds. Job, it says he possessed 7,000 sheep. If you read through the law of Moses, shepherds uh, and I mean sheep were all over the place. There, there are laws about sheep. I mean, they they were so important to uh, life that there were laws written about them. You find laws about their value. You find laws about uh, when you should be eating sheep and uh, laws about how lambs uh, should be used for offerings to the Lord. Uh, So so they're they're central to the the, uh, Mosaic law or at least present in them. And then you just read through the Old Testament and the, the number of sheep that are spoken about is just like unbelievable. Numbers chapter 31 tells us when Moses and Israel were victorious over Midian, uh, they took from them 675,000 sheep from the Midianites. When Solomon dedicated uh, the temple It says that that he gave 120,000 of his own sheep. Uh, Like how many more sheep must have been around than 120,000 sheep? Uh, First Kings records Misha, king of Moab, delivering 100,000 sheep to the king of Israel. Uh, In Chronicles, it mentions that the descendants of Reuben and Gad battled against a group called the Hagrites, and they took from the Hagrites 250,000 sheep. And that's all, that just compares appropriately what, with what we find in extra biblical texts in the ancient Near East as well. One estimation of a number of sheep within the Neo-Sumerian Empire from records that have been uncovered. That That's an empire that stretched along the border of Turkey and uh, uh, or all the through Turkey along the border of Iran and Iraq uh, approximately a thousand years before David. Uh, they, they account just, from looking at the records for at least two point five million sheep in that particular stretch of the world, and this is all to say that just the the number sheer number of sheep and the amount of of language around shepherds uh, it, it just you know it 's like well, this is just what life 's about P- people understand. Uh, what's going on this is this is a, an analogy a, a, a sense of something everybody understood and everything we read about in Psalm 23 about caring for sheep it was all true that that's what shepherds did it, it accurately represents the care they offered they were they had these enormous herds. Just think of those numbers, having to move them from place to place. They eat the grass. They have to go somewhere else because all that grass is gone. And they can't go to the fertile ground, right? Because what's in the fertile ground? It's all agriculture. So, so they're going into these rugged terrains up the side of mountains and around wherever they can find some grass to eat. Long distances, dangerous uh, extent in order for the sheep to be fed and watered uh, and they're trying to find the best paths so they don't fall down the cliffs and uh, to get them there. and, and they're carrying this rod and, and staff, a shorter rod and a bigger staff to protect against uh, intruders, to shoo the, the sheep back together so they don't get separated from the flock. This life-sustaining care. It was just a a perfect metaphor to be employed to describe God's care for his people. And so it's used throughout scripture. Uh, The earliest place is Genesis chapter 48, where Jacob describes the Lord as the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this very day. Isaiah the prophet, chapter 40, he says, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. And there's just many more examples throughout the Old Testament that you can turn to where the Lord is compared to a shepherd. So this was just a metaphor that everybody could understand. It was accessible. It was clearly understood. When you heard this, you got it because you saw it lived out day in and day out, uh, even for us. I mean, none of you probably. Does anyone know a shepherd? Yeah, I don't think so. So none of you know, a shepherd, but but it's just such an easy, clear example that, that that we all get. We understand what David meant by the way. And That's why it's of great assurance to us, because it's so clear. This love, tender, protective care. That's described. But for David, if we're to assume that David actually wrote Psalm 23, uh, for him, uh, you know, he maybe wrote it at one, around 1000 BC when he was around. If he actually wrote it, uh, this identification of the Lord as a shepherd is even more intimate for him, right? Because you know that he grew up as a shepherd. So when he says the Lord's a shepherd, he had the sense of what it meant meant to be a shepherd. And by the way, yes, we should assume David wrote this psalm. Uh, And for a number of reasons. As you see, Psalm 23, it starts out a psalm of David. And, you know, scholars will kind of debate that. What does that mean? Does it mean it's a school of people who are in the school of David later on who wrote this? Or does it mean it's actually a psalm about David? Uh, Or, uh, you know, other kind of interpretations that say, well, maybe David actually didn't write this. It means something else. Uh, but I, I want to argue that no, it, it actually means it's David wrote this. I mean, even our own Bible, when you look in the Bible, you'll notice that there these superscriptions of you know a Psalm of David. They don't even get a number. Uh, it, it, the number actually you know ends with the verse, the last Psalm, last verse, and then it doesn't start again. The next number doesn't happen until. Uh, the first line of the psalm, they kind of skip over that little note. And uh, and so it, it almost looks like, you know, how our NIV has little labels that says this section's about this and this is about that. Uh, so it almost, it gives the impression that those statements aren't even scripture. They're just some later editor put that in. And and again, I want to say that that's not the case for, for a number of reasons. First, uh, all of our, three main ancient sources of the Old Testament attest to the presence of these superscriptions, these descriptions that say this is a psalm of somebody and occasionally it'll say, uh, give a setting of when that psalm was written or what it was specifically about. You have the Hebrew Masoretic text. That's sort of the main Hebrew text. You have uh, the Greek translation of that text that actually happened about 200 B.C., 150 B.C., uh, way back then. Uh, And then you have a third resource called the Dead Sea Scrolls, which, you know, around Jesus' time, 50 B.C., 50 A.D., material from that point. And all of them... Point to the presence; they have the presence of these superscriptions, that they they date back, you know, at least to when the tra- all these translations happened. Uh, to you know, the, the earliest of that bunch I just mentioned that we have for sure is the, the Greek translation, the Septuagint, Sub- two hundred B.C. A- and the kind of Hebrew that uh, that these attributions are written in. It was this older form of Hebrew that even at 200 BC, those Greek translators uh, of the Septuagint, uh, uh, you know, of uh, from Hebrew to, to Greek, they were having a hard time translating these words. They didn't know what they meant because the use of these words had actually fallen out of use. So they, you know, so they were ancient words that they didn't even understand at 200 BC, Uh, but but I'd say, actually, there's attribution to uh, different Psalms that David wrote that goes even earlier than that, because if you look at 2 Chronicles 29, it records King Hezekiah, Uh, again, David was about 1000 BC, the Septuagint was around 200 B.C. King Hezekiah was around 700 B.C. And in an act of covenant renewal, cleaning out the temple and renewing worship, uh, King Hezekiah gives this order. He says, the Levites, uh, they are to sing praises to the Lord with the words of David and of Asaph, the seer. And it says they sang praises and gladdened with gladness and they bowed down and worshiped in 2nd Chronicles 29. So even at 700 year, 700 BC, it was clear that there were psalms that were written to David, that were tribute to David, that... Those gathered at the temple could say, "Ah, oh, I know what psalm you're talking about, Hezekiah." The, oh, the ones that David wrote. Uh, so, so, again, there's clear connection uh, to that. We know that David himself was uh, ministered to Saul through his music, and at times, um, or uh, you know, he, he played music for Saul when Saul's spirit was. Uh, having trouble and, and would calm him down. He had this, this spirit of God about him connected to music. And then you read in Second Samuel 23, these are the last words uh, that are recorded according to 2 Samuel 23 of what David says. This is what he says. Now these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob. And listen to this, according to the ESV translation, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue, David said. So again, even he himself is identifying himself as a psalmist upon whom God's spirit dwelt in order to profess truth through music and song. But I, I think the most, uh, well, actually let me say one more thing. 2 Samuel 22, uh, the chapter just before this, it, it records one of David's psalms and it just so happens that psalm in in 2 Samuel 22 is in the Psalter. It's, Uh, Psalm 18, and again, at the top of Psalm 18, it says the same kind of thing as Psalm 23, a psalm of David. Uh, I, I think the most convincing thing for me, though, is that Jesus and the inspired New Testament authors believe that David was actually the author of psalms in which they Uh, made reference to. Jesus said to Pharisees in Matthew 22, he says, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord saying the Lord said to my Lord sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. That's a quote of Psalm 110, which begins a Psalm of David. Paul does the same thing in Romans chapter 4, citing David as the uh, psalmist of Psalm 16. Luke does so in Acts 4, and there's a number of other places in the New Testament where David is cited as the author of the psalm that is quoted. So all of this is to say that we should not be reluctant to view each of the Psalms attributed to David as something he himself has written. And if that's the case for this Psalm, it is just rich in content. Because again, David, he grew up as a shepherd. He knew what the sacrifice it took, the time it took, the labor it took. Uh, protect every one of those innocent sheep, poor sheep, lost sheep to protect them and provide for them and care for them. And so when David speaks about God as a shepherd, he does so out of his own shepherd's heart. You know, as a father of four, when the scriptures talk about God as father. I get it because you know taking care of my own kids and caring for them it's not easy and I have this deep appreciation for the way God cares for me as a father because of my experience uh, as a father and and that that intimate testimony that David offers Again, it just provides this great assurance that David knows what he's talking about. That we can be assured because he was assured. But for David calling God shepherd, this, it wasn't just like this intimate reference. It really was a bold proclamation. When looking at Psalm 23, commentators will will often pull it apart into two sections, verses one through four, because the main metaphor there it, it's of a shepherd taking care of his sheep. But then, when you get to verses five and six, it seems like the metaphor changes from a shepherd to a host. Right, it verse. Five and six says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Sheep usually don't sit at tables. Uh, they usually don't dwell in our houses. So why a shift in metaphor at this point? And I would, I would want to say it actually isn't a shift in metaphor. It's actually driving home uh, uh, sort of an all-encompassing, uh, overarching, single declaration in which these two sub-metaphors are giving witness and testimony to. And what is the, what is the single proclamation that David is making in Psalm 23? It's that... G that uh, God is king. We'll get to Jesus in a little bit. It's the God is king. So throughout the ancient Near East, all of the kings and the gods themselves were referenced to, they, they, were, they were called shepherds. So here in uh, is one example, the Egyptian pharaoh Sesostris. Uh, the first, the twentieth, uh, from the twentieth century BC, he says of of himself, "Ra begat me to do which he did, to execute that which he commanded me to do, to appoint me shepherd of this land. He appointed me lord of mankind." And you can see in the picture next to it, uh, that that's actually a sarcophagus of Tutankhamen uh, a few centuries later. And you'll notice in, in that uh, creation, that sarcophagus, that uh, Tutankhamun's holding on to a shepherd's crook. Here is another Stella. Uh, it's called the Code of Hammurabi, really important work from the 18th century BC, from King Hammurabi. He's a Babylonian king. And you can see him depicted also holding a a shortened rod or a staff of some kind above as well. And listen to the opening words that are written below this picture because they have a striking similarity to Psalm 23. Hammurabi, this is what he says. Hammurabi, the protecting king am I. I made them a peaceful, abiding place. I have uprooted the enemy above and below, subdued the earth, brought prosperity to the land, guaranteed security to the inhabitants in their homes. The great gods have called me, and listen, I am the salvation-bearing shepherd whose staff is straight, In my shelter, I have let them repose in peace. That sounds awfully like Psalm 23, doesn't it? And, and, you know, this language about, uh, you know, victory over the enemies. uh, That that then moves us to the second half of Psalm 23. Uh, 23. You prepared a table before me in the presence of my enemies. That again is a statement of victorious kingship. Here's another Stella. This time from King Asher and II who ruled over Assyria that's north of Israel about a hundred years or so after David. You can see he also is holding on to a shepherd's staff. Uh, and, and the things that are written onto that uh, piece of stone, it's all about this great banquet. He had conquered uh, a number of lands and he decided that he was going to build a new city capital city for himself. So he took captives from those lands, brought them, made them help assist, build this new capital city of his. And then it goes on to describe this amazing banquet for 70,000 people in the city uh, that lasted for 10 days. They had a thousand fattened Heads of calf, a thousand calves, 10,000 sheep, 15,000 lambs. And it goes on and on describing this great city feast in the presence of their captive uh, enemies. Here's one last relief from another Assyrian king, this time. From the 7th century BC, 300 years after David, King sounds a lot like the first guy. This guy's King Asheron-Banipal. And you can see him lounging with an attendant eating at a table. Behind him rests a bow because his enemies have been defeated. And there's a close-up picture you can see on the tree that's the furthest away from Uh, the king. On the tree is a hook that's holding the head of his enemy that he had just defeated as he's eating there in the midst while his headless enemy looks on. Lovely, isn't it? Well, what to make of all these similarities with these other kings being called shepherd and having these meals in the presence of enemy? It, it, it almost feels kind of unsettling, doesn't it? Oh, David, here he is uh, copying all of these other writings or it sounds just like them or that's not what's going on here at all. It is just the opposite. David is It is a radical declaration. That's what Psalm 23 is. It's a radical. It's not a whisper that everything's going to be okay. It is It is that. But it's this radical declaration by David against the false gods who were embraced by foreign empires. The Lord is my shepherd. Not small letter Lord, not L, capital L, small O, small R, small D. In the Old Testament, you will find that in a number of places. But that points, when you see capital L with small letters following it, that points to the word Elohim, which is more of a general word that describes God, more like God's office as God. But in the Old Testament, when you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that is a statement of God's personal name. It's, it, it conveys that this is Yahweh. Yahweh. Psalm twenty-three speaks of Yahweh, his personal name. Yahweh is God, not Marduk, not Osiris, not Bel. It's not Baal, and and if if David was with us today, he'd say it's not Vishnu, it's not Allah, it's it's Yahweh. Yahweh is King. Psalm twenty-three is a polemic against all of the other religions that swirled around Israel, that there's only one true God, that there's only one true shepherd, and it is Yahweh. Yahweh means, it means I am, or or the God who is. His name is even a polemic because it is a statement that all the other gods who are worshipped by the nations They are not. And this brings us then back to the issue of assurance. There are a number of bold statements that are made in this psalm extending to you promises that we will not be in want. That we will receive rest. That he will refresh our souls. That he will guide us through dark valleys. That we will have victory over our enemies. That goodness and love will belong to us. That we will be in his presence forever. How can you be assured of these things? That these things are actually true for you? Well, according to David, it's because He is Yahweh. He is the God who is. He is king. He rules over it all. He has authority over everything. He makes me lie down in green pastures, gives me still water, refreshes my soul, guides me along the paths of righteousness. Why? Look at verse 3. It says, for his namesake. You see, The king's reputation is at stake if he doesn't deliver his promises that he's extended to you. His covenant promises to care for his people, to provide for them, to protect them. If he doesn't do that, his reputation is ruined in the eyes of the world. The king has the authority to bring about what he's promised, and he surely will in your life because he always lives up to his reputation as king. That's the ground of our assurance in this psalm. And that's the ground in which David spoke out of. Look, the the intimacy of the psalm isn't necessarily based in the fact that David was a shepherd and God's a shepherd. There's there's truth to that. What it's really based in is the intimacy of David's relationship with God himself. That throughout David's life, Psalm 23 was always true for him. There he is in a field taking care of sheep, minding his own business, and Samuel shows up, and goes through his stronger, smarter, older brothers and said, nope, 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 nope. I want the guy caring for the sheep in the field. That's who the Lord wants. Dave, what? (laughs) You know, totally. But God took him and called him into a role for this nation that belonged to the king. And, and and here David should have been squashed by Goliath, and with a few stones took care of him because God was with him, and and he's chased by by um, uh, Saul through the desert, and and comes through all that, and he becomes king, and he has victory over his enemies and brings his people to a point of peace. Everything David spoke out of in Psalm 23 is exactly what he experienced. This psalm offers assurance to you because David experienced this. He wanted you to know you can trust this king with your life because he's delivered for David Himself. You can offer your allegiance to this great king and he'll come through. Let me make one structural observation about this psalm. At the very beginning, among the first two words is the word Yahweh. At the very end, it ends with the word and the name and the person Yahweh. And if you do a count of the Hebrew words, the very middle word begins the phrase, you are with me. Yahweh, Yahweh, you are with me. And everything else in that psalm becomes authentically true and experienced because of that. Because Yahweh, Yahweh, God Himself, the God who is, is with you. He is the one who is with you. I don't know where your assurance comes from. I, I don't know in your own life where where you find that rock solid hope about the future. There's a lot of voices offering you peace and security, whispering in your ear. But David wants you to know from his personal experience, only Yahweh is the true shepherd king who can restore and refresh your soul. I, I should, and just in passing as a closing, just make a comment about our New Testament reading. According to the first chapter of the Gospel of John, God became flesh and dwelt among us. Do you know when Jesus called himself the good shepherd in John chapter 10? It says that the Pharisees Pharisees looked at Jesus and said, You are mad. You're crazy. And then Jesus began to talk about sheep and shepherding again, applying it to himself. And then it says that the Pharisees wanted to stone Jesus. Now, tell me, do you think that was because Jesus was using a quaint metaphor about taking care of sheep? No, they wanted to stone Jesus because Jesus was declaring that he was king, that he himself and the Father are one. That he was the God who could deliver and provide the assurance of life. And the Pharisees wouldn't have any of it. And so upon witnessing his resurrection on the day of Pentecost, Peter proclaimed to the Jews in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2. He said this. Peter says, fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently That the patriarch David died and was buried. And his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah. Therefore, let all Israel be assured... Let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. There's that word of assurance again. I don't know where your assurance comes from in life, assurance that you're not forgotten, assurance that God intends good for you, Assurance that these dark valleys are evil or enemy, that they don't have the last word that God does, that he's going to care for you and guide you and protect you and provide for you and you'll dwell in his house forever. But David's assurance came from Yahweh, who ultimately manifested himself in and through The person of Jesus Christ, he is the good shepherd who laid down his life for us, who has promised us an abundant and eternal life to dwell in his house forever. If if you need assurance, if you need a good father to whisper into your ear this day, that everything is going to be okay. You only have one place to turn. It's to Jesus Christ. He is your good shepherd. David believed it. Peter proclaimed it. You're among hundreds here who are experiencing this even today. Turn to Christ and find that assurance in life. Let's, let's pray towards that end. Jesus, we do thank you. That your resurrection was the greatest manifestation of our assurance that you are the good shepherd, that you will care for us and lead us on that path of righteousness into your own dwelling for eternity. Lord, for those who are here who have not trusted you, would you do a work in their lives and move them from unbelief to belief, even in this moment by your spirit? Lord, for those who are brokenhearted, oh, give them peace that hardship and dark valleys do not win out in the end. You do, Lord. Yahweh, Yahweh, be with us. Jesus Christ, be with us. We pray in his name. Amen.